All right, welcome to the first ever class on 1 John, taught by me here. My name is Joel. This is Masterclass Theology, or it has a million different names. I am sometimes called Big Rev, and that goes back to my days when I was a motorcyclist, but not really. It was my road name, Big Rev. And that goes back a million years before to, to my first car I had and got a license for, and the oxygen sensor kept blowing on it. So I would come to a stop sign, shift it to neutral, and rev like crazy, because I wasn't going anywhere. Otherwise, it was to, the car was going to shut off, so I was big rev. Lo and behold, I become a pastor, and then that works out. Okay, so we are in 1 John, and we are going to have a blast. Your page here, I, I, I've been trying to figure out how, how to make graphics for this page. Whenever you see those double carrots, those little sideways like hash mark things, those are going to be like illustrations. Um, our class tonight is called Eyewitness, and you're going to grasp that really quick. Again, we got four verses tonight, just the first four verses of John. But 1 John is the sequel to John's much better known work, the Gospel of John. So the Gospel of John, I hate to call that, those of you who are movie buffs, sequels and prequels, no. It's not really a prequel, it's the quill, I mean, it, it is it. It's like John's gospel is the gospel. It has, oh, when someone comes to me and, and, and says, a brand new Bible study student, they, they used to tell us to say this, oh, have him read the book of John first. Oh, heck no. John is a simple, simple man with very easy to understand Greek. But John is deep. John is profound. John brings out things of Jesus that the other Gospels don't even touch. Now, John's first work was the Gospel. And he also, by the Holy Spirit's inspiration, penned the most famous verse ever. It is in, you see them on signs of football games by people who never go to church. John, John 3, well, yeah. Millions of people out there who stink at memorizing their Bible Oh, you know John 3.16. John 3.16 is something that you just learn. And you learn it as a kid. You learn it whenever. It is the verse. Most famous verse of the Bible. Easily. The year is about 90 to 95 AD. Now, Jesus once told the boys. He told them, all you, my paraphrase, all you all are going to die. But one of you is going to live longer. John! John outlived them all. John would be exiled. He would tick off at least one Caesar. He'd get exiled to an island of Patmos. And then he finally would make his way to around the city of Ephesus. Ephesus being uh, kind of uh, the ruins today are called FS, E-F-E-S in, in, in Asia Minor, Turkey. You can find those ruins, the ancient city of Ephesus. I was just there. Uh, a few years ago, when my wife and I got taken on a Holy Land cruise, and it, it blew my mind because as we were there, I was reading Acts 19 and pictured, picturing Paul getting yanked through the city. It's kind of cool. John would end up there, and John's boy, his number one dude is some guy named Polycarp, and Polycarp is going to be the guy in Smyrna, which you'll find in the book of Revelation. 
and it's now the modern-day Turkish city of Izmir. One of my great friends, my best friend, my first year in college, Serhan's his name. Serhan from Turkey. And he said, I am from Izmir. You Christians call this city Smyrna in your Bible. Like, hey, that's awesome, dude. You're from a Bible city. I'm from Decatur. <laughs> we gave the world the Chicago Bears. That's all we did. It is enough. It is enough. And Bears trivia, George Hallis, it was the Decatur Staley's that I could take you to A.E. Staley Manufacturing and find that first practice field. It's all those cooling towers right there in the stinkiest part of Decatur. Anyone who comes back home to Decatur goes, ha, home. And George Hallis took his Decatur Staley's. Notice the bear on the sidelines on the bear's uniform is Staley the bear. He took his Decatur Staley's all the way up north, and he brought with him University of Illinois colors. That's why the Bears are the colors they are, because the U of I is the color they are. Downstate has to have something, you know. So the Gospel of John. Of the original 12 disciples, John may have been Jesus' most committed disciple. He's the one that is, keeps saying the one that Jesus loved. He was the guy who Jesus entrusted his mother's care to. John might have even been related to Jesus, like a cousin or something. John is the last man standing. He perhaps is the last person living who was present and who actually lived through all the Jesus mania. John had a burden to make certain that Jesus didn't die within the first generation of believers. As Billy Graham once said, we were always just one generation away of losing in terms of the gospel proclamation. Yeah, that starts with John. So, take a moment here. We're going to take two minutes, and we're just going to pause. Grab your trusty, dusty writing utensil. I want you at the top of your page, and this is something I don't want you to discuss, because this is something you may not want to admit. I'm going to describe a sentence for you, and I want you to finish it. I love you, Jesus. I will follow you to the end, comma, but... What is that one thing that continues to be on? It's like, oh, I could give the gospel to anybody, but just don't bring that up. Jesus, your word is perfect. You, you are able to deal with any possible scenario, and your word is sufficient, and it is holy, and it is blessed. But, write down what comes after that but, right now. Whatever flies to your mind right now, one that might be for all of you is, oh, I could, I could give the gospel any day, but oh, if they bring up the problem of evil, why do bad things happen, and why is there evil in this world? Why does a good God allow this? Why is God either, he's either impotent or he's mean? Which is it? What is the end of that sentence? Now, maybe some of you are extra holy and awesome, and you don't have an end of that sentence. You're like, nope, we're good. I trust Jesus all the way, and I'm good with that, and there is no issue that will be there that will make me finish that sentence with a but. You know how I feel about I love you, but. Some of us are meeting you for the first time, Joel. If, if someone says I love you, comma, but, ignore the second half of that sentence. They don't love you. I love you has no but. I love you, honey, but stop. Just like someone would say, well, I'm not a racist, but... You can guarantee they're going to say the most racist thing ever right there. 
or I'm not sexist, or, you know, I'm a good person, but no. We're not having this I love you, but. But we do this with God. So I want you to write down, because these are the things that you're writing down right now, that why I'm having you do this, these are things that are divisive. These are things that you don't want brought up. John is writing to a church that is on the front lines and they're about to die. They're being divided from within and we're going to meet these people. I guess there used to be this political movement of seceding. Oh, you take us off, we're going to secede from the union and the whole war between the states. There are secessionists. That's a big word. Why not? There are secessionists in John's church, his neighborhood of churches in and around Ephesus who are dividing and who are pretenders, who are the ones who are going to bring these theological nuances, every little thing, and they're going to divide and they're going to try to conquer. And one of the purposes of 1 John is to take that head on. He does so like a loving grandfather at times. John is a sweetheart. The stuff he brings in this book, he's tackling this issue. Because he's all that's left. Peter, Dave, or David, Peter, Paul, yeah, David's long gone. They're dead. The 500 that were present when Jesus was resurrected, the math is simple. They're dead. Maybe a couple hanging on in some kind of old first century old folks home or something. That's it. John is all that's left. He's the only one, the last friend of Jesus standing. So if there's anyone who's going to remind the people what Jesus said, how he said it, what he was about, it was Jesus' boy, his dude, his right-hand man, the guy he allowed to lay his head upon his own breast. John. There's always pretenders rearing their ugly heads, even in the church. John was the last living testament of Jesus, the final authority on earth of all things Jesus. And even he was on his last legs. He's not going to live too much longer. Uh, in John 20, he explicitly states that there are very few books do the purpose of why, why he wrote what he wrote. He says, this was written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by, leaving, by believing you may have life in his name. In other words, he's telling us if we believe in Jesus, we can know we're saved. But isn't that John 3, 16? Wait a minute. Am I really saved? Can I really have commitment? Can I really know? I mean, seriously? Can I really know? Who could know? Nobody can look into my heart. How could they really know? Look to what you wrote down. For some people, they write down things like, well, you know, I, I'm good with the Bible and all, but this whole Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life, John 14, 6, no one can come to the Father except through him. That's not very tolerant. You're right. The gospel is inclusive in that anyone can come. It is exclusive in that you can only come through Jesus. That doesn't play in this politically correct nonsense culture we have where everything has to pass some kind of weird filter before it's truth or not. So the Bible already is getting on someone's nerves by making the statements it makes. So many people are like, oh, well, 
There's issues of gender today, and there's issues of sexuality today, and there's issues of orientation today. There's issues of all these things, and the Bible, it's good for getting me saved and all, but come on. There's a but there. So what did you write down? What is that one thing sticking in your craw when it comes to God's word? Because we don't know yet what these successionist people were doing in that first century church. We're going to get clues. They put words on the top of their paper. But did Jesus really die? Was he really God? Can God die? Can God suffer? Is this whole thing really real? Is the flesh really real? Or is it more about the spirit? They would dig and they would dig. We're going to look at big themes, the character of God, who he is, the centrality of Jesus, who he is, and why he's so important. We're going to cover what committed love really is. Spoiler, it's love and real relationships. We're going to look at what fellowship is. We're going to look at fellowship tonight. It's going to be fun. And you're going to hear me throughout this journey point at big words. Again, John, very simple, simple text. Paul, oh my goodness, Paul's all over the place sometimes. His Greek is astronomical. It's not the worst. Hebrews is pretty bad. Hebrews is really, really complex Greek. John, not so much. By the way, I don't tell people to go to John first. I have them go to Mark first. Go to Mark. If you're going to brand new Bible reader, start in Mark. Get to know this Jesus guy. You're done with Mark? Go to Luke, maybe Matthew. And finally, okay, okay, you've been here for a while, now we'll do John. Because then you can get, kind of get the cut of his jib a bit. So you're going to hear me as we go week to week talk about these big Polaroid words. Real simple words. Like love or walk. And so you're not going to be surprised by that. Okay, here we go. 1 John 1. One to four. We're in the sequel. And the irony of this is the sequel is really a trilogy. So it just makes, all, makes no sense at all movie-wise. That which was from the beginning. Ooh, we've heard that before, right? That's one of John's things. John 1.1 1, 1 kind of has that taste too. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. There's five things there. Look in verse 1. You can count on your fingers. Count them out. Five things he mentions here about his testimony. Okay. He's proclaiming this word from the beginning. Now, this does not have the flavor of John 1, 1, which is kind of cosmological. Like, in the beginning, John 1, 1 is like Genesis 1, 1. There's a flavor of that here as well. But that which is from the beginning, which we have heard. Oh, well, you can't hear Genesis 1, 1. You've got to hear something. Which we have seen with our eyes. Ah, yes. So this is something to look at here. Which we have looked at and our hands have touched. Did John touch Jesus? You bet. I mean, I don't think doubting Thomas is the only one that put his hands in his side and touched the. I mean, he probably had them all do that. They see Jesus, you know, arisen from the dead. I'm sure they gave him a hug. I'm sure they did this or that. He touched him. Our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. This word of life is 
centered in a person. Right away from the start, the eyewitness testifies. Eyewitness. Think about this. Because John's going to face some enemies in this guy. In this guy. It's basically a gospel. It's an epistle. An epistle means letter or writing. Like you write a letter to some, back in the days when you wrote letters. First John, an email to the church of Ephesus. John is, yeah, he's, he's, he's writing these things down. He's letting us know. He's testifying. Think back to it. Here's a good, a good analogy. Something that we were all eyewitnesses of. It used to be the JFK assassination. We've had one that has supplanted that in terms of everybody. 9-11. I know where I was. I was a seminary student. I was, I, I, I was staying with a family, and the young man I was staying with, one of the, 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 the children of that family, he just really liked me. He'd always come down and try to wake me up before my alarm clock and jump on the bed I was sleeping on. He'd say, Joe, 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 they're, 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 they're putting planes into the towers. I'm like, oh, pal, come on. You know, let me sleep. I, I, my alarm's going to go off here in a few minutes. I've got Hebrew today. I've got a big test. I mean, come on. He's like, no, no, no. I'm like, enough. Go back to bed. He's like crying. You know, I'm like, oh. Leave me alone. You know, I, I was a real jerk. All right, looking back. But, and he comes back again. They did it again. There's a second building that planes have come in and knocked it down. I'm like, are you kidding me? And there's a TV at the end of the bed. Turn it on. And he turns it on. I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry, buddy. I'm so sorry. I'm like emailing my professor. Is Hebrew class canceled today? I don't know. I was the youth pastor, and at the time, only pastor at a little church in Racing, Wisconsin. I had to have to plan a worship service that night to process. Everyone, we, everyone knows where we were. In fact, oh my goodness, I, I remember I went on a, a, a New York City field trip, a, a school field trip. We took a train all the way, or flew, I forgot what we did, but we, we went all the way to New York City, and we all had little disposable cameras, you know, click, 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 and, and so I found those pictures the other day. And I had some t- a time travel moment with myself. I said, oh, Joel, high school Joel, please tell me, please tell me as I go through these pictures that your stupid self back then took a picture of the Twin Towers. Please. I did. So I'm going through these pictures I'm like, okay. Because it was well before 2000. Okay, please, having a moment like that. We all knew where we were. John is going to come from the perspective of an eyewitness. These other bozos are going to try to say this or that. John's like, I've touched. He said, this is my body. Take and eat. I did. It's like John has this eyewitness. The eyewitness testifies. Verse 2. The testifier proclaims. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. The testifier proclaims. We read a good article a little while back in staff meeting. Pastor Scott gave it to us. He says, you know, check this out. This might ruffle your feathers a bit, especially some of you old school Christians like me. Nowhere in the Bible do they share the gospel. Not once. The gospel is never shared. What in the Sam Hill are you talking about, big guy? It's not shared. 
You don't share the gospel as in, I just really hope that, you know, you can see things my way and that you can see what God has done in my life and maybe you will accept what I'm going to say. No! The gospel is never shared. It is proclaimed. Boom. No, you don't share the gospel. You proclaim the gospel. You trust the Holy Spirit to use that proclamation. There's no word for sharing with the gospel. It's like, okay, maybe you'll listen. No, you proclaim the gospel. So the, 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 te- the eyewitness testifies. The testifier proclaims. What is proclaimed in verse 2? What do we see? What in the world is he proclaiming? The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. We proclaimed you the eternal life, which was with the Father and appeared to us. What's he proclaiming? Is he proclaiming some weird philosophical concept? Oh, the eternal life, quote unquote. No. You don't touch eternal life. You don't see eternal life. What's he talking about? Better question. Who is he talking about? Who is that eternal life? Jesus! Yes! So all these bozo pretenders in the church who are trying to twist the the flock this way and that, they're going to say, oh, we know God, and we know God better than you know God. And there's plenty of people out there that have this idea that they know God, and they want to take you outside of the Scripture. And they want to prove to you by some other thing, by some brand new revelation, or, oh, my experience, you'll never know until you walk a mile in their shoes. Hogwash. Truth is never dependent upon my story. Truth may be illustrated by my story, but at no time is it dependent upon my story or your story. Hmm. He's proclaiming Jesus. Eternal life is more than just a concept. It's a person. One of the angriest people at Jesus was his best friend Martha. He didn't show up to heal Lazarus. And she's like, you could have been here. Where were you? Don't you believe he's going to rise again? I do. I'm paraphrasing. Because she's a person of faith, and she has a great doxological faith moment there that's amazing. It's arguably the greatest in all the scripture, Martha. And she does it in her bitterness and anger towards Jesus and towards the situation and the fact that her brother's now dead and Jesus could have done something about it. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He drops that in that moment. You see, this eternal, this eternal life thing is not just, I believe and God forgave me and now I get eternal life. That's awful vanilla. You get Jesus. He is eternal life. He is the word. He is the word, the life himself. You get him and a blessing of that is the forgiveness and a blessing of that is the eternal life that comes this by the way eternal life is not something you're looking forward to it's now there is no kickball on the street do over none no do overs this is life there's no hitting f5 and refreshing your browser page boy that kind of dates me golly I don't know, double tapping your home button and swiping out to kill the program or restarting it again. I don't know. You you choose your example you want. There is none of that. The eternal life is now, right now. And though we may die, Jesus says, yet shall you live. 
The proclaimer, the, the eyewitness testifies, the testifier proclaims, the proclaimer invites. You're going to find, by the way, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father and made him known. John 1, 1 and 18. I can't call 1 John a sequel if I don't make references to the original. That's the best part about a sequel. When you get those moments, you're like, ooh, that was like the first one. Kind of gives you a little chills, like, yeah, that reminds me why I watched that movie 20 years ago. Here it is again. John 17, now this is eternal life, that they know you. Jesus is praying here. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The proclaimer invites, verse 3. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. We, make, we, we write this. Oh, we, we, that's verse 4. I'll say it again. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, he said fellowship. Oh, great. That means we're going to have a potluck supper. <laughs> It's a really old school word. In fact, my dad, he's with Jesus now, my dad, I remember he, was, he took part, my earliest memory of this word was there was an adult Sunday school class, much like this class here. And the, the tag outside the wall read this. It had a word that wasn't English. Koinonia. I'm like, koinonia who? Koinonia. I'm like, what is that? What in the world is that? It's the word John uses here for fellowship. Fellowship. I wrote in your, in your text, the Greek word for fellowship, koinonia, is related to the words for common, participant, and sharing. So to have fellowship means you have something in common. To have fellowship means that you are participating in something. To have fellowship means you are sharing something together. Yes, at fellowship dinner, we are sharing a meal. We have the basic commonality. We're all sitting at the table and eating these 14 potato salads at the same time. And when you're a pastor, you have to eat every one. And you have to comment, oh, who made this one? Wow, I've never had this kind of mustard in my... Okay, wow, my goodness. And you have all these great, delicious things on my plate and every dear, sweet lady in the room watching me. What's he going to think of my... My relish salad, or my, you know, he, he, I, I noticed he grabbed that. He didn't grab hers. He grabbed mine. He took two scoops of mine. Hmm, I wonder what he's going to say. And I'm just, just like, okay, I'm going to gain weight today because I have a fellowship dinner. Fellowship is so much more than a stinking meal. There's something about that word that grabs a hold of your very soul because you have to participate. You know, here at the bridge, we're all about connecting people with God. That's great. Connecting people with people, also great. And connecting people with service. you got to get off your rear. There are no backbenchers at the bridge. We all serve. We all get out there. We all care. We're all care pastors, not just me. We have to care for people. Because Jesus has changed our lives. You see, we're going to come across some people who are rocking the boat against John, who are going to say, oh no, 
The Christian life means this. You don't have to worry about that. You can have this and all will be well. And John's like, excuse me. Excuse me. I was there. He's like the original gospel hipster moment here. He was there. Before it was popular, he was there. He knew him. He knew this Jesus. Don't go telling him what Jesus meant and what he didn't mean. He wrote it down in his gospel. His whole mission was that you would know Jesus. So now, what kind of invitation is this? He's inviting you to fellowship, but fellowship also with Jesus and the Father? Whoa. That got real spiritual real quick, didn't it? Yeah. In fact, for those of you who are uh, paying extra attention, it never stopped being spiritual. It just got a little bit deeper in the pool. Your life as a Christian is to have that fellowship. Who's talked about this before? John 15, I am the vine, you are the, you are the branches. Remain in me and you will bear fruit. You don't bear fruit, my father's going to cut it off and burn it, basically. Your whole life is to bear fruit remaining in that vine. John's already done that before. That's what it's all about, participating. Now, we don't do the heavy lifting that Jesus did. You don't die for my sins, for example. You don't pay the price that my sins, the great credit card debt of my soul, you don't pay that. But you encourage me or discourage me depending upon who you are. That kind of came out a little rude, but didn't quite mean that. But you have the power to participate. God expects your participation in this gospel. He has seen fit to include you. I don't know why God would use a bum like me, but he does. My sins are by definition unforgivable. All sins are by definition unforgivable. Just ask Adam and Eve. Boop, right out of the garden. This is a pretty deep invitation. The eyewitness testifies, the testifier proclaims, the proclaimer invites. He's writing this book so that fellowship is once again possible. Oh, but I'm a good student, Joel, and I'm going to read and I'm going to study, and I've already taken some notes. Do you want to see it? Yes, that's the equivalent of leaving a worship service and going, great sermon. Oh, you sure knocked that one out of the park. You were kind of snoring the whole time, sir, but oh, yes, and, oh, I put something in the plates, and I, I, I made sure to give the attaboy to the sermon, a little special music. Oh, wow, that was great. That's not participation. Participation is having something in common. For so much of us, we forget that. We're real quick to argue and fight things. We stand for our sacred cows, and we all, oh, I'm going to stand for this. And we forget, okay, this person's different than me. We both have Christ. Yes, we do things different, and yes, we smell different, or some of us really smell different. Um, they look different, we speak different, but we have Jesus in common. We forget that. Let's finish this out. Verse 4. A joy that is complete. We write this to make our joy complete. This verse actually breaks my heart because I've been a pastor in a church that was threatening to split. 
I was involved in a church split as of, at a very young age. My dad, my, my spiritual hero, he was, this is a little church in suburb of Decatur, and uh, he was the chairman of the congregation. And there was one elder that stood up in that church and started spouting some really, really bad theology. Like, Jesus and Satan are brothers, kind of bad theology. It's kind of like Mormon 101, essentially. It's close. And my dad, to his credit, stood up to the man and said, you know what? Church splits are bad things. We don't want to split this church. The New Testament says many, many times, be unified. Warn the divisive person once. Warn him a second time. That had nothing to do with him after that. My dad was brave, and he just said, you know what? We have to stand for Jesus here. We have to stand for the word of God. And I just remember they kicked us out. A bunch of us had to leave. That was a really bad church split. I was a young pastor, and um, yeah, there was, a, there was an elder in my church who just had it out against me. And he, was take, he just didn't like me. And he was just turning this person and this person and this person and this person. I'm having to preach in front of this guy. Church splits are horrible. John is facing a split. He's facing, he's facing something that's scary. He's facing these wolves in sheep's clothing. By the way, that whole phrase, wolves in sheep's clothing, the wolves don't put on sheep's clothing because they have a wolf fetish. They put on sheep's clothing because they want to eat. And they think, this is how I'm going to eat. I'm going to fool all these, these simpletons, and now I'm going to eat. These people wanting to divide want to eat. They are just like how, how Peter describes Satan, prowling around like a lion, seeking to eat, seeking to devour. So we get, John's like, i got to deal with this. Because we are just that one generation away. And what breaks my heart is that one generation away, this is generation one. Jesus died like AD 30 something. This is like AD 90, 95. Seriously? The church can't get past AD 100? Seriously? Did they not read anything? John's like, I wrote this all down. Did you not get it? I'm dying here, but I tried to represent this man who changed me and who's changing people. A pastor writes to a divided church, what therefore to bring joy to John? Think about that for a second. Take a moment here on your papers. Just write down. Facing that situation, John writes, make my joy complete. What would make this pastor, this really really old apostle pastor, what would make his joy complete? Because how you answer this question defines how you're going to tackle 1 John. It defines what you're going to understand about 1 John and the purpose of 1 John. What would make John's joy complete here? Maybe he's like a beleaguered... Uh, single mom who's sitting there in the living room is like, can't you kids just be quiet? Can't you, get, can't you just stop arguing with each other? Can't we just get a moment's peace? I'm trying to cook dinner. Could you please stop? I just picked up this room. Could you not spill the same toy all over the book? Please, just give me two minutes. Is he like that? Is he like, guys, come on. All my brothers had to die for this, and now you're going to let them come in and I wonder if John wishes he could have died for Jesus. 
all the rest of the apostles did. And here he had to remain and be as faithful as he could. And all he's left with is the remains of this whole Jesus movement hanging by a thread, and he sees the wolves with the scissors trying to cut that thread. He's just like, I just want my joy to be complete. I want to see the harvest. I want to see... Think about that. This really old pastor who's on his last legs wants to have his joy made complete. That's how 1 John's going to unfold. To answer that prayer. So that fellowship, real, honest-to-God fellowship will happen again. Blanks. The first one, common theology unifies us. You can have a million different clocks. You can have a million different watches. If you set them all to the right standard, Greenwich Mean Time standard, they will all be right. They all have to be fine-tuned toward that standard, and then it doesn't matter what time zone you go into. If you, all, time, if you set them all to that one standard, they'll be right. Another illustration. You're buttoning up your shirt. You get the top button right, most likely the rest of the buttons are going to be okay. You can still mess it up, I guess, but you get the top button wrong, and brrr, you're going to be all over the place. You've got to focus on that. An old school person would say the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. That's old school. That was like when I was a kid and the pastor was really old talking. This is like a really old example. Common theology unifies us. There's so many things that divide us, so many things that, well, I'm this kind of ism. No, I'm this kind of ology. I view this, and I view that, and I view this. Okay, but what do we have together? What do we have? It's like if you're going to fight, if you're going to fight and divide, that church division better be like what my dad experienced. There are certain theological things that must be common, because when they're not common, we're not talking about Christ anymore. We're talking about the God of self, or the God of you, or the God of comfort, or the God of tolerance, or the God of whatever. I hate that bumper sticker, coexist. So there's certain letters on that coexist that don't coexist with anybody. And our brothers and sisters are dying because no one's believing that bumper sticker. It's like, hello. If you're going to fight theologically, make it worth it. It better be a very cardinal doctrine about Jesus and salvation. This whole, okay, when's he coming back? When are we going to be raptured? Are we going to be pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib? Is it going to be this? Okay, those are fun, fine to, to talk about, but you don't stop relationships because of those theologies. And if you do, stop. That's just wrong. We have so many things in this world that divides us. Who you vote for, the kind of person you like. Come on! The one thing that should unite us makes John's joy complete. we got to get back to that. You've come to 1 John at the right time in your life. I know that because God is sovereign. He has no plan B. It's just plan A. His sovereign train is going down the tracks and nothing's knocking it off. You're here for a reason and I'm so glad you're here. Common theology unifies us. Secondly, we participate, because remember, 
Koinonia, we got to participate, we got to have something in common. Okay, our theology makes it common, but is it just that? Do we all just believe the right things and that's it? If so, wow, that's easy. Now we can all just, I don't know, be like the kind of hypocrite that, that cries because people have to work on Sundays. They don't come to church, those hypocrites. I can't believe they don't work. On, how dare you work on Sunday? And how dare you not come to church on Sunday? Yet the same kind of bozo goes to the restaurant after church. That person's working on Sunday, pal, and you're making sure they're doing it. So we participate by proclaiming. I don't want you to share the gospel with me. I want, I want you to proclaim God's truth. Proclamation. Your proclamation could be, listen, it could be like amazing grace. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. But you're proclaiming God's goodness and God's truth. It's like, well, you're not shifting your feet and kind of holding your hat out. and like, well, if you got time to hear it, um, yeah, no. We participate by proclaiming, proclaiming. The eyewitness testified. The testifier proclaims. The proclaimer invites. Make his joy complete. We're going to get to, in the, in the coming weeks, some really hard stuff. We're going to wonder if his joy will ever be made complete. We're going to go, seriously, they believed that back then? Really? They were trying to preach that back then? Seriously? We're going to learn about sin. We're going to learn about salvation. We're going to know about commitment. You, if you stay the course with this class, you are going to be so emboldened in your faith. You have to be. You have no other choice but to be. Because you, like John, will be on those front lines. You get to participate by proclaiming. Because God has not brought a pastor like me into your workplace. God has not brought a pastor like me into your family. He has not brought someone like me, and for good reason. A little of me goes a long way, I'm sure. <laughs> he has you where he has you. Now bloom where you're planted. He has you where he has you. Now proclaim. Now you're not sitting there like, proclaim, and, just, and, then, and no one wants to come by you anymore. No, your proclaiming is in, in a winsome way. You're doing so properly in a way that, that is attractive to people, that message like, yeah, I want that. My, I see how she lives her life. And say what you want, but I want that. That peace that she had, my goodness. She is having, she, life is kicking her rear, but she can still smile. You, how, dare, how can you smile with what you're going through? Seriously? I want that. I want that. Proclaim. We participate by proclaiming. Thanks for letting me share tonight, guys. This has been a little bit of sweating, a lot of bit of sweating on my end. If I'd only carried this phone around the room, I'd have gotten more steps. This is First John. Our goal, fellowship. Our goal, make that joy complete. We're going to see. And once First John is over... Every, every trilogy has to have a two and three. We're going to see what happens. This is church at its finest. It is also church at its scariest. If John doesn't come through on this mission right here, by all accounts, the church was going to die. Now, I say by all accounts because that takes God's sovereign hand out of it. 
But just looking at it at face value, this was the great put up or shut up moment for the church. What was going to happen? This has been Masterclass Theology for 1 John 1. We'll see you next week.